produced by Ranting Rhino Productions, Praxis Pedagogy exists to position our teaching and learning practice within different methodologies. We want to construct a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in our own teaching and learning and in our students' experience. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to episode 74 of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. In this amazing episode, I get to sit down and talk with Sherry Spalich. She's from Vienna, Austria, and Sherry is an educator, a leadership coach, and digital interloper at home in Vienna, Austria. She is the founder and publishing editor of Identity, Education, and Power. She's taught elementary physical education at the American International School Vienna since 1996. She has an MA in sports psychology, which we talk about and an M.Ed. in independent school leadership. She blogs frequently on a variety of topics and is founder of the online publication Identity, Education and Power, which invites educator commentary on the intersections of those three themes. Her essay collection, Care at the Core, was released in 2019. You need to buy that book. Go to Kindle, go to Amazon. I've got a link in the in the show notes on the website, praxispedagogy.com. You need this book. It's an amazing book. Anyway, sit back, relax, enjoy your coffee, enjoy your cup of tea, wherever you are. Hopefully you're in a library somewhere or maybe at your favorite coffee shop because we're allowed to do those things now. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Thank you for tuning in. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you took the time to uh, tune in and listen to us today. Today, I have a very special guest, Sherry Spellick. Did I pronounce that correctly? It's Spalitz. Spalitz. You know, ah. here it is. I should have asked before I pressed record. Uh, thank you for correcting me on that. That is, uh, that is, that is, I am, I am so sorry that I pronounced your last name incorrectly. No worries at all. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Um, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and then, uh, and then we'll get started in some of the questions that I want to ask you. Cause I got, I got some things I want to learn. Okay. Um, so my name is Sherry Spalitz and that is a name that I have been sporting for only, uh, about 16 years. And so it's also taken me, uh, quite some time to sort of get used to it. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's my name. Uh, I teach in an international school in Vienna, Austria, where I have been on staff uh, for, I believe, 25 years, uh, which is a remarkably long time to be in any one place. Um, I teach elementary physical education. And um, I also, for most of the years that I've been at the school, have also coached track and field, which is another great love of mine. That's amazing. So for those who are listening, who may not know, what's an international school? What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, it's um, a school. So I'm, I live in Austria and the school itself is one in which um, it has, we're working with an American curriculum and also the international baccalaureate diploma program. And we offer this uh, English speaking uh, curriculum to students from 
who are local, so Austrian students, but also uh, students whose families are from all over the world, who were who were uh, in in Austria or in Vienna. Yeah, that's cool. And so, um, are are these families? somewhat transient in the sense that they, they come to Austria for a short period of time and then off they go in a couple, three years, four years, five years. Many, many of them. Um, so we, we have, we have, uh, embassy families, uh, we have corporate families. And then of course there's, um, a U, uh, United Nations center in Vienna, which also draws a lot of, of international families who are re- connected to government agencies. So, um, yes, we do have a lot of, of folks who are in for two, three, five years and then move on. Um, but we also have actually, I would say, uh, a remarkable number of, of families who who are in Vienna for the duration um, for for longer periods of time. Um, and that is also a really wonderful thing to see. <laughs> That's amazing. So uh, the school system in Austria, is it publicly funded uh, or is it a split between public and private? Well, um, the school where I'm teaching right now is a private school. So that is uh, so this, it's it's uh, run on tuition fees. Um, However, I, I mean, I my my own sons attended Austrian public schools when they were younger. Um, and so their elementary education was definitely in Austrian public schools. So I have some familiarity with, with that as well. Um, and, and I, and I feel like that also would, I wanted that always to be an option for my own children that, you know, if I weren't at the, at, at my school, that they could also attend the Austrian uh, public schools. Nice. Nice. So what what draw what drew you into education and then so as as you begin that 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 answer um, we're going to be heading towards what drew you to Austria. Mm. Uh, what drew me to education, um, I would say, uh, is probably uh, my my upbringing. So my my mother uh, was an educator, but not a classroom teacher. Um, she actually, I think, had several different roles in uh, Cleveland public high schools where I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and so I was used to sort of just being around this woman who was, uh, I would say, almost fanatical about books and reading and, and seeing that children had books. Um, so that was that was one aspect. And she also had she came from a family of educators. So I feel like it was just kind of there in in our families, just embedded. Um, uh, but also, I think I didn't think about teaching until um, I spent time in Austria. I came came to Austria the first time as a, as a college student. I did my junior year abroad here. And there it was that was maybe the first time that people asked me for instruction in English um, where I was, you know, sort of tutoring here or there. And I kind of thought, hmm, there's maybe something to this. So that was the the in uh, was sort of uh, just beginning to teach English as a, as a complete novice. Like, uh, well, let's start here. Right. So then what, what drew you to um, specifically elementary school? Because I mean, I knew what it was like being in elementary school, even though I'm a little older now, but 
I mean, I can still remember some of my years in elementary school going, Oh, mercy. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you have that one class that you always remember from elementary school that you're like, okay, that was a fun class. But man, if I had to be the teacher for that class, I would be pulling my, the rest of my hair out. Exactly. Um, elementary is, is, uh, is when I started teaching, uh, elementary was the very furthest thing from my mind. Um, uh, in fact, I, I really thought uh, I could, I, I remember thinking I was 23 when I started teaching and I was teaching middle and high school. And I said, I, I, oh, I could never do elementary. Uh, and it was uh, several years later when I was asked to step into a role uh, at my school where they needed a long-term substitute. And, and I, I said, yes, not realizing what I was actually getting into. Um, and so I like to, in some ways, I like to say that the job happened to me. Uh, but once I, I got acquainted with, with, uh, with elementary students and how they operate, um, I, I kind of, I, I thought, oh, maybe this is something for me. And then I also had an amazing mentor that I worked with for uh, the first 15 years, uh, who was just so enthusiastic about physical education and who was able to provide me with uh, really the foundational knowledge of, look, these are the things we need to do, but here's how to have fun. Um, so I, I would say that her mentoring was absolutely key to, to, for me to sort of unlock the, the, you know, what's special about, um, physical education at the elementary level. Right. Yeah. That's so key, isn't it? Mentorship is so key. When, when you did your master of arts in sports psychology, um, were you, were you looking at, at achieving that master's degree with an eye on education or were you looking for something else? I, it's funny that you should ask. Of course, I was looking for something else. And then I <laughs> decided, oh, I, I see how this works. Um, it's a degree that at the time I was a competitive athlete. I was a competitive runner and I was very interested in, in the psychological aspects of, of how how we actually what happens when we compete. And um, and I was really interested also in the coaching interface, how it is that when we coach athletes, how do we help them sort of master their own emotional and mental states to to produce the best performance? So um, that was my area. And I really thought that that would lead me into uh, what I was looking at was athletic. What did I call it? it was athletic counseling. So I, I was really interested in in how uh, yeah how to help athletes um, not just perform better but also to help them enjoy their lives and and to sort of see uh, you know the the broad spectrum of of possibilities you know within athletics but also beyond that um, and and that was at the time when I was asked to step into this role as uh, uh, as the long-term sub. So my, my study then became uh, a little bit more about uh, the process of teaching, but also it was still concerned with motivation and, and, but just 
but mostly motivating children and how uh, how we bring folks into something that may feel unfamiliar or something they really love, but are having difficulty in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And I ask, are, are your sons athletes? Um, yes and no. So my first son um, did pursue, I think he played, he did judo for some time. He tried out uh, a couple of other things, but compared, Competition was not the thing that he wanted to do. My second child, many years later, so he's th- they're 13 years apart. Um, my second child, uh, in many ways, was all about competition and, and still is. Um, so he is definitely a, he's a competitor. And so he did um, ski jumping uh, here in Austria for about four, almost four years. Um, between the ages of of eight and twelve, and uh, so that was a great experience for him and also for us as parents, um, just to 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 learn this other world uh, that happens. But it's a sport that is so specialized that uh, at a certain age, you know, at fourteen, you kind of need to either go pro or go home, and it, and it reached a stage where he sort of said, ah, "I think I'll go home." <laughs> So, so we stopped that. And, and so he's, he's, yeah, he's, he, he is an athlete. It's just a, but no particular specialization as of yet. Okay. Okay. The reason I ask is my son, I have four kids uh, and they're almost all, yeah, four, they're almost all adults. I have a son and three daughters in that order. My son was a competitive soccer player. In fact, he was a goalkeeper and he, he played at a pretty high level, went to Europe to, to do some tournaments and stuff and did well and decided to come home. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to stay in Europe and be okay. a, away from family. Um, and I've, I've always been trying to figure out ways to get into his head mm-hmm. <laughs> to try and understand, because I mean, I, I played competitive soccer too. when I was, a, when I was younger, in fact, I was a goalkeeper. And so as a parent, it was always, I always had this one lens and then as an ex player, I had another lens mm-hmm. and, and trying to understand who he, who he was when he was playing and, and all of that stuff. Um, but ironically, maybe not so ironically, he went to school at a, a community college here and he got a bachelor's degree in physical education and coaching because ah. he still wants to be a coach. In fact, he's doing private training for, for kids in our community and, um, and, and doing mm-hmm. stuff volunteer on a volunteer basis. And so, um, I, I, the reason I ask about your Emmy in sports psychology is because that's something that he's always been interested in. And, and in fact, he connects best with younger kids, like elementary school kids. And, and I'm wondering if there's a real strong connection there, uh, in the sense that these, the, the kids seem to be more, I don't know if flexible or pliable with their thinking and their understanding, if that's even, if that even makes sense in a conversation. Oh, absolutely. I think I think for a lot of things, particularly because your son has had that experience at a very, to compete at a very high level. So he's he's he, you know, he knows the, the pressures, right? The the expectations, the you know, sort of all those those things that make it tough that that are the reasons that many people don't continue or persist. Um, and so uh, when you work with with young children, one of the beauties of that is that. Um, if you can connect with them, I mean, it's still all relationship based, right? If they if they see in you uh, an interest in them and they see that you like them, uh, 
uh, then they are ready to give everything uh, for, you know, to, to sort of be in your orbit. And, and it's just such a wonderful, powerful relationship. I mean, I have to say coaching um, is, is something that I love. And I think in many ways that infuses my, my whole teaching philosophy, because if, you know, if coaching is sort of the ideal uh, pedagogical place to be, um, then, then why not make that sort of the centerpiece of, of the classroom um, where students also want to be there, right? Because that's really the, the key difference, right? In, in class, students are required to be there. They're required to be in front of you and yeah, you were there. Coaching, it's, it's by choice. So students are showing up because, or, or athletes or kids are showing up because they want to be there. It's something they want to learn how to do. They want to learn to get better. And so for me, I guess the question was always, how do I make this a situation where kids are, they want to be there. They want to be in the classroom with me and we can do stuff and they can get better and that they're motivated to, to get better. And so I can definitely appreciate how your son is probably able to work with that in students to create an atmosphere that, that um, allows kids to feel like, Ooh, I want to come back. I want to get, get together with that guy and, and learn more stuff. Yeah. That's interesting. Have you, have you learned any, any strategies as you, as you look at, as you look at that age group and say, you know, it, the difference of being on the field, like you said, on the field and in the classroom is on the field that most of them want to be there. There are a few that, you know, they're there because mom and dad want them to stay out of trouble. Fair enough. But <laughs> it's so true, right? That yes, you know, absolutely. most of them want to be there because they want to be good at what they're doing or they want to get better. And so there's a, there's some, some goals there, but in the classroom, I mean, they're mandated to be there. Is, were there some strategies that you employed that, that worked or maybe didn't work uh, as you worked out this application? Sure. I think for me, it's been, uh, it's, it's been a long process. But I, I really think it begins with with listening to kids, um, you know, understanding what it is, what their priorities are, because as teachers, right, we have our agenda. We know, OK, I'm here and we're, I'm going to teach you this. And, you know, it's taken it, it's taken many years to sort of realize that teaching is maybe a misnomer. Um, I can share some skills that I'd like us to try to practice, but ultimately my job is to create the conditions for their exploration and their learning. Um, I can't mandate learning. I can't say, now you learn this. Instead, I can say, hey, listen, we're going to practice this. Um, we're, we're practicing overhand throwing. Here's, here's how we're going to practice it. And then we do that, but then we also later, we play a game where we're using that, that skill. And so I've, I've found that kids in elementary kids in PE, and this is probably true also, I want to say K-12, they want to have fun. They, you know, if you ask them, well, what do you want? Well, we want to have fun. And if that's their priority, my job is to structure our time together so that to them, it seems fun. And that doesn't mean that everything is, is the game, but actually for elementary kids, 
they can pretty much make anything into a game. <laughs> That's so it true. Doesn't, yeah. It really doesn't take too much. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it is a game. And there are some kids who love to compete and they want to, you know, is it a race? Is it, and I'll say, no, there's no stopwatch on this. Um, but, that's just it. So for me, it's always about responding to what it is. Kids are already telling me, I want this. And I'll say, well, okay, well, how do we, and then I actually use them as resources and ah. say, well, okay, how, how are we going to make that happen? Huh? So do you see that being, um, watered down and, and, and for, for a lack of better term, I'll just say, you know, that creativity, that aspect of wanting to have fun and learning, do you see that kind of being, well, I don't know, pushed out the door as they grow older in the K to 12 system. And even as they get into college university, even. Oh, sure. But it's also right. PE. Depending on who you are and where you sit in an organization, how you look at PE will vary. Um, and, but for kids, again, their priorities are actually primarily social. And I would say that's true also in other classrooms, that their concerns are still social. Who am I going to sit next to? Who is going to be in my group? Am I, oh, am I having to do this group project with this person or with these people? Um, and so all of those calculations shape their experience and their approach to how they think about accomplishment and achievement. Um, and so... I, I do think in terms of how we, I guess for me, it's we, in schools, we need to think about how are we responding to, to students' demands as, as systems, right? I mean, how are we as a system responding to what students are telling us, I need this? And really, our students are telling us, I need interaction. I need to be, I need validation. I need encouragement. I need, you know, a whole bunch of things that are largely um, social, social, emotional in nature. But those are the things that are, that's the groundwork for learning anything, whether it's learning an instrument or learning um, math facts, if it's learning um, how to understand a literary text, that emotional foundation is necessary for students to feel like, yeah, this is worth my while. And I, and I would say as, as kids get older, that notion of what is worth their while becomes, it's just a, a bigger factor. That's so cool. Um, you, you're also a leadership coach and, and I'm wondering if some of the, some of the stuff that we're talking about with sports psychology and, kids in elementary school. I'm, I'm wondering if there's some transferability here to your leadership coaching practice and interaction. Um, I, I hope so. I hope so. Um, one of the things about leadership that I I've discovered, cause I've, I'm not someone who I haven't held, you know, a, a titled position of leadership per se. Um, but I do know what I look for in leaders and what I hope, I mean, I have, I have ideas about what good leadership looks like and I know when I've experienced it and what those qualities have been. And again, I think it's for me, the leadership piece that I'm most concerned about is how well leaders are able to listen. 
and how well leaders are able to read to read the room and respond to the room. Um, and and again, I guess that's kind of that's in the same range of right this this social emotional foundation of of human interaction that forms the basis for everything else for how our our perception works how we i mean think about how we how we perceive a problem you know think i think of every faculty meeting when we have a problem how that problem is perceived and how we go about trying to solve it the leadership piece in that for me, a lot of it has to do with how well that that person or those people are able to listen to the people in the room, to their to honestly listen to their concerns, to provide space for people to perhaps problem solve in smaller groups or in specialized groups if that's necessary. And and to um allow people the, the the possibility to wrestle with the problem not to to take not to take away their agency in trying to solve their own problem yeah so there it's all related yeah no kidding right okay and as you're and as you're describing that i'm thinking about you know the your blog uh that you you frequently write about identity education and power and i can really see a connection between you know, what you're doing in your blog life or your blog sphere and, and how that can even, well, let me just say it this way, that the interaction that you have with your elementary school students in some way is starting to pave the road for their leadership interactions, not only as they grow into their teenage years, but even into their adult years. Would, would, would you agree with that or, or. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I feel seen. Thank you. <laughs> Honestly, I, yes, yes, yes. In, in so many ways, I, I, I see teaching and I, maybe this has to do with age too, but what I find is that students really of any age, but students really, they want to have agency. They want to have choice. Um, they want to show what they can do. And Sometimes I think my job as an educator is actually to get out of their way more than it is to to shape the way that that sometimes my job is really just to set up the parameters in which they can show what they can do and where they can shine uh, for each other. Right. Because it's not even always about shining for me but they want being able to show their strengths to each other and for them to recognize oh wow look at that look at what she can do and in that way that they then become much more uh, capable of of first of all acknowledging strengths in others recognizing their own strengths but then also recognizing how you can bring those things together to create something to create something new that's not necessarily dictated from by me, that it's something they create on their own. And that for me is, is kind of, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going for. That's the, that's the big goal. Uh, and how that plays out. I think there are lots of ways that I'll never know how it plays out. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. 
until somebody stands up with a valedictorian address and, and mentions you in, in their grade four phys- physical ed class or something along those lines. And I remember this one person and she made such an impact on me. Um, yeah. Isn't that the case? Um, I'm, so getting back to your blog with identity education power, how do you, how do you weave in or begin to weave in educate younger children about this issue of identity and power, because I mean, we live in a, we live in a world right now that's dealing a lot with those two topics alone. How do you, how do you, how do you work through that? Well, I guess in, in many ways the identity education and power is actually is a, is a publication where I originally conceived it as a space where I could invite other writers to, to contribute and and that's maybe the piece that I'm most proud of is that the, the the folks who have contributed to make that publication as rich as it is, um, because there are so many different uh, voices that have have made that space uh, an absolutely fascinating one and 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 always timely uh, in a lot of respects. Um, with my students, um, identity and power. I mean, if you spend any time with children, children know all about power. They, they, I mean, think of how you've experienced your own children, right? As a parent, I mean, they're very, they, they experience power in a very visceral way. And they also understand very early how to execute power, how to exercise their own power and experiment with their own power. And so when in my classroom, the identity piece is, is also always there because I, you know, in PE, in a lot of ways, kids are in many, I feel like kids may be a bit freer than they, than they are in other spaces. Um, you know, it's the space, it's the activities, and it's the, the things that we're doing that allow them to interact differently. Um, and so, that the way that they experience identity and power is going to come up in the simple interaction of uh, my friends, please find a partner. Or it's in uh, friends, can you please make all gender groups of three? And then there's the question, Wait, what, what is, what is she? Oh, she means boys and girls. Okay. Um, and, and in the, in those interactions, there's usually someone who's very hesitant. There's someone who um, is going to two or three people who are going to grab their best friends. And that's, those are the only people they want to work with you. It's, 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 I mean, you could watch my students do that and you would immediately recognize, ah, okay, this is the, the popular strong kid. This is the, this is the person who's more reserved. Um, this is someone who's not very interested in following the directions. All of those roles would be, immediately visible to you. And so that, so in principle, I think our students days are a constant negotiation of, of power and identity. Who am I in this context? Where is my, what is my influence? What is the level of my influence? Um, How powerful do I feel to make the choices that I I'd like to make? So all of those things are there. So when we're talking about making groups and so on, I may not be using the term power, but it's always present. 
so interesting because I can, it immediately makes me think of that, you know, kids are, kids are awesome to watch and, and hang out with because they're just so unfiltered, right? <laughs> they haven't, they haven't yes. learned the social filters, the social norms. <laughs> they haven't learned the nuances. And, and I think for the most part, quite honestly, they don't care. <laughs> well, they do. They do. do they? they care okay. a lot. They okay. do. They really, they, they care a lot. Um, but at the same time, and so, I mean, the conversations that I can have with, let's say, uh, you know, nine, 10 year olds about the choices they're making in terms of their groups that, that if you give them time, they'll come clean and they'll write and they'll be able to name, they'll say, well, they all want to be with their friends. I'll say, well, does that give us fair teams? No. Well, what kind of game do you all want to have? Fair. <laughs> but, but in order to have the fair teams, they realize, ooh, they're going to have to make a sacrifice. And that's, that's a conversation that is, it's powerful because it's so palpable. It's concrete. They know exactly. These are the terms of engagement. Yes, I can be with my best friends. And they can be with their best friends. But when we have a game, they are going to romp our team. And that's not going to be very fun. <laughs> and so if I want to play the game in a way that we can all sort of enjoy it, then I'm going to have to. Mm, oh. and, and that's exactly. So that's the conversation about, mm, is, it, is it worth it? What's it worth to me? So which fairness do I want right now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you're describing that, I see so many parallels to the education system that I'm engaged in and, and move and have my being with in regards to, to leading and being in leadership and, and teamwork and the whole thing. It's just, it's just more sophisticated in the sense that we hide it better. Mm -hmm. um, our excuses sound better <laughs> and, yeah, and i'll even yes. just reveal a little bit more so like myself i'm thinking of that going huh yeah there are people that i would rather work with for sure but is that the best right and 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 so incorporating a person that i may not get along with entirely on a team may be better for the team than for me and and what you're talking about the sacrifice piece makes a ton of sense yes but sense making is not always our goal because actually we, as humans, we also want to have fun. We, we, we want to like the conditions under which we're working. Um, so yeah, it's, it does involve some, some tough choices. Um, and so hence that, that really that I love the word negotiating, you know, like having to really negotiate often so much with ourselves first, right. In order to sort of say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to separate from my bestie and I'm going to go to this group and then we're going to play on this. Okay. It's going to be all right. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> I, I just love it. <laughs> um, so switching gears a little bit, um, yeah. what, what, what led you to write, uh, as much as you want to write that, um, goodness. I think I've, I've always written. I've always, uh, or it seems like 
it seems to me that in, in one form or another, whether it's been in in correspondence. So back in the 80s, uh, when I was in college, I remember I had a long distance boyfriend and, and we had this I now. I can now say an absolutely amazing correspondence. Um, and and also with my best friend, with whom I I have not lived in the same city with my best friend since uh, college. So senior year, uh, you know, we we went our separate ways. And so we have not lived actually in the same continent in in 30 years, but we've always corresponded. So through email and letters. Um, and so I've always I've always written. Um, I, I would say that in. Uh, whew, when did I decide? I think I, I started my blog in 2012. And, you know, again, just sort of like just for my own edification, edified listener. OK, I'll just write some stuff. And um, and, and the, the turning point, I would say, was Twitter. I fell into Twitter. Someone invited me into Twitter and I thought, OK, well, what's this about? And I realized this is people who were pretty much talking about stuff they read. And I can do that. And they're interested in, and we can have this conversation about stuff that we read and stuff. And I didn't realize that that was the text-based sort of like hub that I had been craving. And so that was that connection to uh, reading and writing. And so one of the, the best descriptions that I found for my writing is writing back. That a good deal of my blogging is in response to something that I read or heard. Um, and usually it's something that I found on Twitter or came across through various channels. So that's it. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. So what's, what are you reading right now? Are, are you one of these people that loves to read like three or four books at a time? Or are you like, um, I dive into this one and just devour it and then I move on. I, uh, I do a bit of both. Um, currently I, um, am, uh, reading a couple of books at a time. Um, I have, um, in nonfiction for a, for actually a, a book group or reading blind spot, um, which is about bias training. And I have to say, I'm not, I mean, I get it and it's very, um, yeah, I get it, but it's, it's not very fulfilling as a read. Um, but it's it's an interesting one, and I'm very curious what our conversations around that book will be. Um, another book that I just finished, and I just it was oh, to die for, um, is Intimacies by Katie Kit Kitamura. I think so. I don't have the, but absolutely phenomenal fiction. Just because it's so straightforward, it's. Oh, just stellar. So I actually went into our library today looking for her other book, which checked out, but I will be on that in no time. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Wow. So what is, I'll make sure to, to link those in the show notes. So people yes. can um, intimacies. It's really, it's fabulous. And you said it's fiction. It is fiction. Okay. Um, it's, it's wonderful. And it's, I guess, one of the things that I loved about it is that um, it's about a uh, an interpreter, so someone who's interpreting from French to English, um, and and because it's this, it it deals with with language and 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 translation, and 
and that's a world that I live in since I live this bilingual existence um, in German and English. Um, so it really, uh, I really loved it. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you find yourself gravitating more towards nonfiction or fiction? For many, many years, it was all nonfiction and almost never fiction. And in the last four to five years since I have befriended so many lovely uh, English teachers uh, on Twitter, I have I have uh, found my way back to excellent fiction. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm sure all those who are listening will be very happy to hear that. Oh, that's good. I've, I've actually I've drifted quite a ways away from fiction. Um, just because I feel like there's just so much to read and I don't have, I don't have all the time in the world. And so when you read, and I'm curious about this, when you, when you read nonfiction, do you, do you do anything special about that reading? Like, do you take notes? Do you write? Do you underline? Do you go back? Like, do you dog ear? Like, I want to know all that stuff. I do. It's so that's that's such a great question. And it's so funny because recently um, I was walking with my librarian friend and I mentioned underlining in my book and she looked at me <laughs> dumbfounded. And I said, well, they're my own books. I mean, yeah. I'm not, I don't, I would never do that with a library book, but she said, I'm thinking of you very differently right now. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I said, well, I, I do, I do underline in books that I own. I, I, um, um, so yes, I do underline uh, a lot of times I, um, will dog ear, uh, particular, books and it's very interesting there are certain books where i feel hesitant to underline so i and, and this is very it's very odd to me i don't know why that is um and i think there's a certain i don't know there are some books that feel sacred to me and and i i so i i i did a lot of dog earring in uh tracy mcmillan cotton's thick um because I, I guess in some ways, Tressie's uh, writing is kind of sacred to me. I mean, Tressie is sort of like my, my great mentor. Uh, and and I, I, I didn't underline in thick, which surprises me, I really think. But I did dog ear a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people who will, who will find a book and they get into it and they realize this is a gem. And they don't want to underline, highlight, do notes. So they'll buy a second one. And that, that new one that they bought, they'll put on the shelf and to do their, their going back okay. and casual reading. But then the first one they bought, they'll just, they'll mark it up and mark dog it, up. it and coffee That's, stain, tear stain, the whole thing. Right. <laughs> that may be my next level. Uh, I may end up doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I could see it happening. My wife gets mad when I start doing that. Cause that, sometimes I'll buy a book on Kindle and go, okay, I need a, I need a hard copy. Cause I'm the kind of person that I love. Yes. I fell in love with books a long time ago and I, my mom read a lot. My dad read a lot, but he read newspapers. Mm-hmm. So he would get like four or five different newspapers and he <gasps> would read every one of them covered it like cover to cover. And then my mom read tons of fiction and, uh, and I come from a trades background. So, you know, reading for me in my, in my working life was all about technical reading. So manuals, uh, okay. specs, you know, rules and regulations, those kinds of things. And then, uh, but I've always been, a, I've always been a reader outside of that in different disciplines too, but I just, I fell in love with reading and I love just the smell of books. Like there are some, oh. 
there are some bookstores that I will just walk into and just breathe deep through the nose. Right. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I know there's dust. Yep. I know in a COVID world, there's, you know, all, I know all that, but just give me a moment. Cause I just, I just love the smell. Right. Oh my gosh. I'm right there with you. I, yeah, I love, I love a good bookstore. I mean, I, that's one of my favorite things. I remember we, when I would travel with, with, with teams and at an international school, when you travel, when you, you leave the country in a lot of cases. So I were going to Zurich and particularly in the early two thousands, when we would go to Zurich for basketball or track, whatever, there was a single bookstore that I always would seek out and they had best selection of English books. And it was at the time I was totally into nonfiction. So I was reading uh, a lot of, of just, just different things, but I, I have to say some of my best nonfiction picks are from Fusel Orel, Orel uh, in, in Zurich. Uh, so that was just, I, I, I really, I love that bookstore. <laughs> That's so, and of course, being in 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 your part of of the of Europe, I'm I'm thinking like you go to a bookstore or a library. It's got to be like 200 years old. They got to have books in there that were written in like the late 1800s that are still there, right? Like I know that that's a big stereotype, but I'm just like, there's got to be they places exist. like that, right? They exist, oh, exist absolutely. Mercy, the the big spiral staircase that goes up three floors, right? Wrought iron, the whole deal. <laughs> Those exist, although I haven't visited one recently. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, no kidding. Right. <laughs> well, oh, yes. mercy. So, so again, switching gears a little bit, um, what's top of mind for you lately? Hmm. I have been thinking about positionality and, uh, I want to say that's the, the most recent essay, uh, that I wrote was about positionality. And it's interesting because I think I, I wrote an essay earlier in the spring that was, was some had, had to do with status literacy. And I feel like it was a prelude. Like I wasn't quite ready to, I didn't realize that then I was talking about positionality. I was of course, but I didn't, I wasn't ready to use the term. And so now when I wrote this most recent essay, I thought this is it because I was able to put it in more concrete terms in ways that lots of people were able to say, aha. And I think part of that had to do with it wasn't a straight uh, race gender thing. That instead I had, I framed a couple of my examples in terms of, um, for instance, in my school, I'm a 25 year veteran and a local hire. And that when uh, I'm listening to new hires talk about their experience coming to my school, their difficulties, their their struggles. Um, as international hires, that I need to sit down and listen. That I do not need to be telling them about their experience. That it's my turn to listen because I don't have that experience, and I've been in my spot for 25 years. At the same time, I also need to be thinking, wait, I've been at this place for 25 years. What influence might I have in improving the conditions that they are describing? And so, so my point was, is, is, is about 
positionality, it depends on where we are. It, it's context dependent and from a variety of different um, factors that, that and layers of, of identities that influence how we are positioned. And this is so important to understand. Race and gender, yes. But for instance, in my organization, with my seniority, I have a different standing in the organization that I might have power to, to speak about something or to speak to uh, members of leadership in a way that someone who is new might not. And yeah, so that's, that's, that is top of mind for me right now. So how do you, how do you see that dovetailing with influence, especially when it comes to mentorship and leadership, right? Cause you, I've, I've heard this phrase a long time about leading three in a 360 degree pattern where you, you lead those who are, you know, in, in a hierarchical situation, you lead those underneath you a certain way and you lead your peers in a certain way. And then you lead those mm-hmm. who are higher in the system, a certain way. Does that, does that come into play with what, with what you're talking about in regards to positionality and, and influence? Absolutely. But I guess for me, the issue is I want each person, wherever they are in their situation, I want people to become competent at recognizing their distinct positionality in that moment and then to step into this other context and recognize how their positionality can shift and change. Um, and so it's, it, it is about becoming a better observer, right? Of, of ourselves and of situations. And, and, you know, one of the things I think we, we put a lot of emphasis on leadership, but not enough on group membership, like what it means to be a, a constructive group member that there we would all, we would all benefit if we were better group members at whatever level we're operating. If we think to ourselves, what can I do to make the situation better? What can I do to make the situation uh, more uh, functional, to be honest, right? And that means in, in a lot of cases, it's do I need to speak up or maybe I need to shut up? In some ways, I can see this circling around to what you were talking about before and teaching your elementary school kids the, the idea of sacrifice and knowing that they may be better at something than somebody else, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to have the most powerful team around them. Right. Exactly. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for making that connection. I, I wouldn't have drawn it as, as clearly, but it's exactly that it's really recognizing, for instance, if I'm a strong player, I can't take away someone else's struggle. They're not going to get better if I play for them. That they have to, they, they're going to need to practice on their own. Am I, and as I mature, this is not something that, you know, that everyone can do, but <laughs> as I mature, I can ask myself, what can I do to help this person practice and get better? Right. 
without taking away their agency in their own struggle and, and productive struggle. Right. Right. Not, you know, like I'm suffering, but, um, but productive struggle. We all need that. We need productive struggle. Yeah. It's, it's like that. I, I used to do a lot of powerlifting. It's like that term time under tension, right? The muscle gets mm. stronger when you increase time under tension, whether that's, you know, whether you're in the, in, whether you're flexing the muscle or, or restricting the load in, in gravity. Right. So yeah, that's really cool. So what has surprised you lately? Hmm. What has surprised me? Oh, okay. Um, it's funny that, cause I also just wrote a, a short blog post about this. What has surprised me lately is discovering um, that I am as territorial and as set in my ways as most other veteran teachers. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wrote a, a blog post about having a, a new colleague and who is, who is wonderful and knowledgeable and eager and that I found myself uh, falling often enough into fairly defensive kind of positioning and, and feeling a little bit, you know, affronted by like, oh. And, and realizing it's just about me and my, my, my fear of losing whatever power, right. Uh, in whatever form that might take. And, and so I, I, I managed to sit down and, and actually write it out and it's been so helpful. It's been very freeing and also very cool to hear the resonance that several people said, Ooh, this is me right now. Oh yes. I feel that. I, mm-hmm. so I know I'm not alone that many of us go through this process of recognizing this is hard. It's hard to share. I mean, we think kids struggle with it. Adults, we, we struggle. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. That's what I was talking about earlier about that. We, the, the filters and the barriers that we put into place, right? Because we're even, it doesn't matter. I think if we're five or we're 55, we don't like to be judged. Oof. No one likes to be judged. And yet here we are judgment machines yeah. um, let loose. I mean, <laughs> yeah, sometimes rampant. And yes. and I, I think as we get older, we get better at the self judgment and the self condemnation. Right. Mm. And um, I have a daughter who's a very prolific writer. Like she's written five novels already, but hasn't published one of them. And, oh. and she's, she's shared with me that the first two will never see the light of day. Right. Hmm. And I'm like, okay, that's fair enough. But are you, what about the other three? And she's like, no, nah, I'm not ready yet. And, hmm. and so I'm, I'm trying to trying to coach her through the, you know, it, it, what, what's the end purpose of you writing? Do you want to write just right. because you love writing or do you want to get published? And we're working through that now. And, and that's, it's, it's, it's a fascinating dilemma. And I, and, and it would be, I, I, that's a conversation I would love to have. Because I think about that a lot. I think about, um, you know, the purpose of writing. And, and for me, it has become a form of release, right? And whether or not people read it, uh, it's not as important. But it, it's also, I've also reached a stage where I know probably somebody's going to read it. And maybe someone will respond. Um, but that's never, it's not, it's not the motivation. And it's also what has been key for me is recognizing my privilege is that I am not dependent on it for income or 
influence. I, I don't need those things in order to feel successful. Um, and so that kind of frees me up to enjoy the process of, oh, I read this thing. Let me write about it. Let me tell you about what I read. And this was so cool. Um, so it's, it's really, it's, I think a lot about how, how people think about writing and, and what, what power we give the process of writing and what power we give the process of publishing and what we consider publishing because uh i i i am can modestly say that i'm a publisher that i have you know people have given me their words to publish and i have compensated them and i realize oh actually i didn't you know i didn't take i didn't go and get a degree in that i didn't i just said hey friends i'm starting this publication want to write yes okay great here, I want to give you here, go buy a pizza because that's all I can afford. Um, so th those processes have really helped me sort of relax around the notion of like, well, what's writing, what's publishing and what does it matter and for whom? Yeah. Those are such powerful questions, right? And yeah, thank you. Cause I'm, I'm going to, try and bring this back to conversation with my daughter later on, but, uh, cause it's, it, it, she, she writes well, I, I've, mm -hmm. <laughs> again, I've only been privileged to see parts of the other three novels. Like I've never, I haven't mm -hmm. been able to look at any. And, and in fact, everybody in our family, I don't think anybody in our family outside of her has actually seen a complete novel, right? We've seen okay. bits of it and pieces right. of it. Um, we know they exist on her computer. We know, we know that they're there. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's, it's like this elusive, animal in the fog that you can see the outline and you get close right. and then it, it runs away. But, uh, but I also understand that she is not alone, that there are many, many, many writers who, who operate that, that way and who, you know, in their own time recognize when the moment arrives. And I guess that's the key is if you can recognize your own moment. Right. That's powerful. Thank you. I'm going to share that with her. All right. Well, we, Sherry, thank you so much for the time that you've spent with me today. This is amazing. I love it. And this is great. And I just have a few final questions to ask of you. Okay. And, and again, thank you for the time that you spent with me. Um, what are, what are, if you were to recommend your top three to five books for people to read, I know that for most of us, that's hard to do because there's so many good ones out there, but what are the top three to five books that you think uh, people should pick up in the next year? Okay. Three to five books that you should pick up in the next year. Okay. I'm going to start with Clint Smith, uh, how the word is passed. Um, America's reckoning with slavery. Um, that is, that was just such a, it's a marvelous read. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. The second thing I'm going to recommend um, I want to say anything written by Tressie McMillan Cotton, and it doesn't have to be her book Thick, which I can recommend. However, she has such a, a huge range of, of articles, blog posts, uh, also a podcast with Roxanne Gay. Any of those opportunities to hear her talk, uh, uh, to, to, to just sort of hear her thinking, take it. Um, 
the third book I am going to shout out. And this is this is it's hard. It's hard to to do this because I'm sort of like I'm looking furtively at my at my bookshelf and I see these these spines sort of waving at me. Pick me, pick me. Um, hmm. I want to say. Um, OK, a recent one, Mia Birdsong, How We Show Up. And that is about community, building community, sustaining community. Um, I love that one. And OK, one more that is a little bit off the beaten track, but I loved it because it was off the beaten track. And that is um, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality by Jane Ward. Um, good one. Nice. Thank you. I heard, I've heard of that third one. I haven't heard of Thick. I, I feel like I should have, but it's, it's a collection of essays. Okay. So, um, it was her second book after, um, lower ed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, uh, stunning just absolutely. And it's fabulous because it, essay writing is really, uh, a major strength. Nice. Sherry, what are you listening to right now? What, what, what what's in your earbuds and, or on your phone? What, what are you listening to? Well, I um, just started listening to podcasts this summer. I finally decided that I had time. And so I did begin listening to um, Here to Slay with Tressie McMillan Cotton and Roxanne Gay. And it is, as, as they describe it, the Black feminist podcast of your dreams. And it is exactly that. Um, and a second uh podcast that I discovered uh, this summer is Let's Talk Bruh. And it is um, it this this season they've been focusing on uh, it's about black masculinity and they've been focusing on uh, divesting from patriarchy this 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 last year. So all the episodes have, have really focused on that. And it is a delight and a pleasure and an absolute it's just oh, it's wonderful. Nice. Just wonderful work. Nice. I, I've seen it. I almost clicked on it to subscribe to it, but now I'm going to have to go do, back and do it. Yes. Uh, yes. Let's talk, bro. Okay. Good deal. Last question, Sherry. What, uh, what impact uh, contribution do you want to have? Once upon a time in an essay written by Audrey Waters, who is another mentor, uh, Ed Tech's Cassandra, um, she wrote about being a node, a node among learners. I think like that, I think, I think that was the term and I've taken that ever since that. And I thought, yes, I want to be a node among learners. So someone who's connecting other people, learners with learners, writers with readers and, and all of those things. Um, that's what I aspire to be. And so I, I try to curate and, and share to positive effect and hopefully make the world a better place in small ways. Good. Thank you so much. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about how uh, you like to be a digital interloper, but maybe, maybe in a future episode <laughs> we can talk about that. Um, that's amazing. Thank you again, Sherry, so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, and everybody uh, listening, I will link to these books and other things in the show notes. Yes, everybody, there will be show notes this season. <laughs> 
something Sherry that I've been neglecting over the last season or two is to put show notes together but they will be there uh, I promise everybody and um, Sherry thanks again and I wish you nothing thank but the you best. so much for having me Tim thank you Hey everybody, thanks again for taking the time to listen to this uh, awesome episode with Sherry. Like I said in the podcast, everything that we've mentioned here, the books, the podcasts, uh, and even the show notes, you can find back at the website praxispedagogy.com in the show notes for this episode. Thanks again. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.